So I know all of you with uh, SEC and ACC loyalties are waiting on the edge of your seat about whether the football season will actually happen. Uh, it's kind of like, a, you know, good luck with that. But I thought I would share with you uh, to begin this uh, final sermon in First Peter with sharing with you my own illustrious football career uh, that lasted one season in the seventh grade. Uh, I know some people usually have head injuries after they play. Apparently, I had a head injury before I played because I thought that I could actually contribute something meaningful to the life of the team. And I, I know as you look at this, this hard-as-a-rock sculpted physique, you think I might be selling myself too short. The, the truth of the matter is I was a second-string cornerback who was responsible for being very fleet of foot and you know, pirouetting in, in the air in order to block a a wide receiver from catching the ball. And uh, my playing time over the course of that season, I think, came to a grand total of about 157 seconds, give or take 10 or more. But for whatever reason, whether it's uh, in spite of me or because of me, you'll never know. But we ended up getting in the championship game. And uh, on that championship game, I was um, apparently tapped because they thought of my versatility to be on special teams. So I was on kickoff. And on kickoff in that championship game, I was suddenly thrust back into my extensive training and remembered what the essentials were that my coaches had taught me over those last several weeks. There was three things. Uh, stay low, lean forward, eyes not down but ahead. Stay low, lean forward, eyes not down but ahead. And I remembered that, and the whistle blew, and the ball sailed, and I headed out, and the just calling the gentleman in front of me who ended up being a trombone player in the high school band that I was later in. He pretty much was twice my size, and though I thought I practiced those uh, essentials to perfection, the next thing I know, I'm staring at the sky. Despite my best efforts, I still knew, though, that that was a crucial kind of stance that I would have to hold in order to do anything on that football field. And that my friends, beloved, and anybody else that might be watching, is a metaphor for what Peter is out to say in the last words of his letter. He has said a lot about what anybody in that day and in many days would face simply by virtue of claiming Jesus as Lord. They'd be thought of as strange, they'd be seen as strange, they'd be treated as strange, and it would be a treacherous way for them to walk and what Peter is out to tell us here in the last concluding words of this letter is what are the marks of a stance in which you keep your feet in faith? What is this strange stance we must all adopt in order to navigate the, the perils, the temptations that are coming our way? Because something's coming for us. Something will always be targeting us. And the question is, how do we keep our feet? You stay low. You lean forward. And you keep your eyes not down, but ahead. That's an analogy for what it means. Let's hear what Peter really means in order to maintain that stance. So I wonder if you might lean in yourself and hear these concluding words of 1 Peter. Our central text for today can be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-14. through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Last week, Peter ended that passage by telling everybody that was listening to him, both those who would be shepherds of the church and anyone who would submit to their servant leadership, that they all, regardless of their station, had to clothe themselves with humility. And in that passage, it was what that meant was that you would entrust yourself to the Lord, entrust yourself to a faithful creator, to believe that you belong to him and that could never change. He's picking up where he left off from last week by saying to us also, humble yourselves before, let's see, how does he say it? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. He's saying you can't, you can't be a fathead. You, you, you have to stay low, if you will. You have to be humble. And therefore to entrust yourself to a faithful creator in believing that you belong to him by his grace where he extends or elaborates on that question, elaborates on what it means to be humble, is he going to flesh out for us why? Why is it necessary to be humble, but also, and more importantly, how do we be humble? Why do we stay low? How do we stay low? The why of it is what he says there at the back half of the verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. To call us to humility is not the Lord throwing his weight around and putting us under his thumb to ensure that we know that he is in charge. To, to stay low and to be humble and, and to do so because there is coming a day when he will exalt you. Implicit within that purpose, that why of being humble, is this notion. There will be days when you are defamed, when your reputation is compromised, when you are dismissed, when you are discarded, when you are brought low, and every fiber of your being will want to do one thing, and that is vindicate yourself. Rescue your reputation, whatever it might be. Prove to somebody, if not just yourself, that you do not deserve the sort of treatment that you've gotten. And yet in moments like that, as much as that desire is reasonable, it also might be an impossible effort. And so in that moment when you, when you can't vindicate yourself, Peter is out to say, humble yourself. Refuse to take matters into your own hands and try to spend your whole life trying to vindicate yourself and just believe this. There is coming a day when there will be a vindication. And therefore, you don't have to devote your life's project to proving to somebody that you're in the right. As, as Han said to Chewie, there'll be another time. That's what it means to trust yourself, to, 
to humble, entrust yourself to the Lord, to, to humble yourself before him. But the question is, how do you do that? And, and in, given the circumstances that he's speaking to, how do you do that? It's, it's almost too succinct for its own good. How do you stay low? How do you humble yourself? He says, by casting your cares upon him. Now that word cares is not really a word we use anymore. I don't say, look at my cares that I have. Oh, how many cares I am carrying with me. We might think of it more so as anxieties. Those thoughts that run through our heads, those different anticipations or possibilities that perturb us and that make us fret. He's saying, cast your anxieties, your besetting thoughts upon him. Now, know any besetting thoughts these days? Um, Know anybody with any? Have they multiplied in a season like this? It's quite possible. So what does it mean to cast those anxieties that, that as if they were, they torment us? How do you do that? The word there for cast, it's used in one other place in the New Testament. And it's in that moment in the New Testament when Jesus is about to have his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they secure a donkey as he requested them to do so. And before they place him on the donkey, they take their cloaks and cast it upon the back of the burrow, the back of the donkey. That that donkey might carry their cloaks and carry the one whom they call Lord. The donkey carries it, they don't. To cast your cares is is to take those anxieties, those things that beset you, and, and put them as if upon the Lord for him to carry them, not you. Which is a, a wonderfully vivid image. But, but what does that mean? What does it mean to cast your anxieties upon him? It's, it's not ignoring them. It's not pretending that they're not there. I mean, who, you, who's, who's tried to do that and never succeeded? You can't. It's also not... Not trying to dissipate them by shaming yourself into wondering why you're afraid. That's, that only compounds the problem. It's not ignoring it. It's not shaming yourself. What is casting your cares? It's, it's doing with your anxieties what you normally do with them and then doing something different. In the middle of our anxieties is this little question, what if? What if I this? What if she? What if it happens that all of these what ifs? And, and the way in which our minds work and the way in which our bodies respond to those kinds of uncertainties, they, they bind us up, they wrap us up, and we're paralyzed by it. Those what-if questions hound us. And I think casting our cares is taking those what-if questions and instead trying to answer them with what's true questions or what's true answers. It is answering the, the premises that we're riding on, the premises that give us a certain measure of anxiety, and answering those premises with certain promises that he's made. It is, it is letting those promises that God has made to us, those things that are truer and deeper and have a wider significance than even the circumstances that plague us, and, and allowing those promises to, I've said it to you before, to interrogate our premises, to ask us, why are we thinking in those terms, or why are we making certain deductions from where those thoughts go? And, and therefore, that gets us into what is it, what, what concretely is it to cast our cares in that way? Because look, I, I know full well that there are moments when, when our bodies, physiologically, our co-conspirators, our accomplices in amplifying our anxieties. I, that's a category. I, I have a category for that. You probably do too. But whatever, whatever remedies we seek, whatever therapies we pursue, isn't it true that what we're most seeking is not 
just to be less anxious, but to be more captivated by the one who has an answer to our anxieties. And so I think the way we cast our anxieties upon him is, first of all, to, to think them out. To, to think about what we're thinking. Uh, to think about what's plaguing us. Anxieties, uh, what they do is that they get us to stop thinking. They, they narrow our thinking into just this very, this very truncated view of, of whatever it is we're facing and we, we will entertain no other thoughts. And therefore, to cast your cares is to not think less about them. It's actually to think more broadly. It's to think more. And it's to ask ourselves questions about why am I, why am I reacting in the way that I am? And that's what the psalmist does elsewhere. In Psalm 42, on three separate occasions between Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, which really go together as one psalm, you hear the psalmist saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's, he's taking his mind, his heart in his hand, and he's, he's asking the question, what is truer than any premises that are holding me captive to my fears? That's, that's thinking them out. But I think casting our cares is secondly, praying them through. When you, when you voice what is most plaguing you to the Lord, when you are crying out to him and saying to him, I cannot carry this, and yet I do not know how to release this, that is the, baby, the, the, the most baby steps in trying to cast your anxieties upon him by just praying it out, believing that he hears, believing that he acts. That's what it means to pray. So it's not just thinking it out, it's not just praying it through, but I think it's also about talking it over. You want to cast your anxieties in a way that is effective and that has potential for you. You've got you to talk it over rather than just sort of bottle it up. You, you have to sort of tease it out. There, there was a practice among the, the Quaker community. If ever you were plagued by anything that you couldn't make a decision over or that you were just beset by any number of things, they would call you into this committee, and, and that committee was, was tasked with one thing, and that was only to ask you questions. And then as you began to, to hear your own voice and to hear their questions, they felt like you were able to hear from the Lord about what it was that was really at the bottom of everything and more, be, more so what is true of him that you're able to navigate these anxious thoughts. That's, that, I think, are just three concrete ways to step forward in casting your anxieties upon him, to, to, to think it out, to pray it through, to talk it over. I don't know another way forward that can be productive. And... The most important question, though, you need to ask yourself is this. Why do that? Why, why cast your cares? Why do you think those three modes of casting would be effective? It's because of what Peter says about why you cast your cares. It's because, he says, because the Lord cares for you. Just sit with that. The God who is, is the one who cares for you. He doesn't put up with you. He doesn't tolerate you. He doesn't begrudgingly welcome you. He cares for you. Imagine if you believed that. Imagine how it might change whatever it is that you're anxious with this morning or at any time. My favorite novel in the last 10 years, I've told you it before, it's by Marilyn Robinson. It's called Gilead. It, it tracks the, it's a memoir written by an aged Presbyterian minister by, Reverend, by the name of Reverend Ames. He writes it to his very young child who has been born to him himself at a very old age. And 
He, he says at one point, uh, about a third of the way through the novel, he says this, Calvin, because he's a Presbyterian minister, Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. I do like Calvin's image because it suggests how God might actually enjoy us. I believe we think about that far too little. You ever think about that? Or is that just sort of a sign that you breeze down by the road and it's in your sort of subliminal messaging center, but you don't really grapple with it? We don't dare think about that too little if we want to cast our cares upon him. John Flavel was a, another reformed minister of the 17th century. He, he lost three wives to death, the first of which was in childbirth, and he lost that child at the same time he lost his first wife. And in a book called Keeping the Heart, he wrote this, Christians have two kinds of goods, the goods of the throne and the goods of the footstool, immovables and movables. If God has secured those, never let me trouble over the loss of these. Indeed, if he had cut off his love, I had reason to be cast down, but this he has not done nor can he do it. This is casting your cares. This is believing he cares for you and that there are some things, no matter how much everything else can change, some things do not. Namely, his care for you. That is what it means to stay low. That is what it means to be humble. That is the necessary stance to keep your feet in the walk of a challenging faith. But there's a second thing that Peter tells us. There's a second aspect to this strange stance. It's not just about staying low. It's also about leaning forward. How do you keep your feet in a world that's so full of, of treachery and seduction and hatred and indifference? Peter is out to say to us that you keep your feet by sizing up him who is your greatest enemy. And that's why he says there in verse Eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yes, Peter has said a great deal throughout his letter about suffering that befalls a believer at the hands of men who think them suspicious, to be sure. But what Peter is saying here is nothing more than what his buddy Paul says at the end of his letter to the church at Ephesus. For in that letter in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What you and I are most against what we are up, what we are most up against is not of this world. And the first thing we probably need to say before we say another word is a nod to those in the room or who might be listening who are thinking, did you really say the devil and you said that out loud? Like you really believe that? Tell you what, just for the sake of argument, if you can imagine an intelligence that is behind the existence of and the sustenance of all things, if you can even imagine that as a possibility, 
And it's a credible one. It's a plausible one. Why can you not at the same time imagine an intelligence that might be opposed to all that? That doesn't prove anything about the existence of the devil, but at least makes it a plausible guess that if there's one behind all things, then there might be one who is also behind everything that's out to oppose all things. So even on the basis of that, what Peter is out to say to us by talking about resisting him who is the devil, he's not trying to invite us to adopt a frame in which we blame everything on the devil. We're not, and he doesn't either. But he is talking about resisting him. Not blaming him for everything, but resisting him. And the question is, what does it mean to resist him? To resist him is to reckon with what the devil most does and most wants. And to get that, you only have to back up and to figure out how does Peter refer to the devil. He refers to him as his nom de plume. His, his word is the accuser. It's the idea of one from a court scene, a, a prosecuting attorney. The one who accuses. The one who is out to accuse God before you and accuse you before God. And he's really good at it. And you hear echoes of it as early as Genesis 3. You hear the serpent trying to create a distortion in the minds of an Adam and Eve. Did God really say that you would die? Did, you, did he really say you couldn't eat of any of it? Oh, you won't surely die. He didn't really mean it. He's out to distort it. He's out to accuse God before you. And he's also out to accuse you before God. To be the one who whispers in the back of your head that you are worthless, that you are nothing, that you are... Um, that you are degraded, that you are hopeless. Kind of like the way the, the white witch accuses Edmund before Aslan. That he owes, that he deserves nothing less than the worst. What does it mean to resist him, though? What is the devil most interested in? He's most interested in nowhere getting out here, no one, none of us getting out of here alive of destroying everything and burning it all over the way he can. And that's why the, the, the one person who, who's, whose commentary on this passage I think had the most profound thing to say was Karl Barth. He recognizes that in this world, you and I face all kinds of opposition, and most of the time that opposition comes from other people. And yet in the midst of facing that opposition, some of which is at the hands of people who are out in some ways not personally, not maybe even over, under the spell of, but nevertheless in league with what we would say is opposed to God's will, just like the accuser is. But Karl Barth says, inasmuch as you and I face opposition from all kinds of people, when it comes to resisting the devil, you've got to think about the way you think of those people in the moment. And so he says this, the militant revolt demanded of Christians, which distinguishes it from all other kinds of revolts, is not directed against any people, not even against those they see taking totally different and corrupt and fatal paths in terms of their commission, even though they will sometimes clash with all kinds of people in discharging it. They rebel and fight for all men, even for those with whom they may clash. Did you hear that? You and I face opposition of all sorts. And yet in the midst of that opposition of those that we are rightly exercised in that wanting to resist their opposition at the same time we might be opposing them for what they do against us we're at the same time called to be for them 
That's how you resist the devil. He just wants us to all kill each other and maim each other and destroy each other. And he delights in it when we do so. But to resist him is at the same time that you're opposing that which is worthy of opposition is also to be for them. Do I know how to do that? No. But can you imagine how it would change every single instance of opposition in your life? Whether it's coming to a marriage, whether it's coming into other people in the workplace, whether it means somebody with whom you have a political disagreement. At the same time you're opposing them, you have to be for them. And the only way, that, that's the only way you can resist the devil. Michael Herrick, or Douglas Herrick, who also commented on this verse, said this, the devil will try to devour us not only through our inclinations toward pride, lust, envy, anger, and so on, but also, more subtly, through our very desires and actions for justice, good order, peace, and progress. Friends, the way you resist the devil, the way you lean forward, is to reckon that when you face opposition, those you are opposed to, you must also be for you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Ever heard that before? Remember who you heard it from? That's lean forward. And it's how you keep your feet. And it's the second part about what it means to keep this strange stance. But he leaves us one more. You don't just stay low. That's important. You can't just lean forward. That's also important. You've also got to keep your eyes not down, but ahead. Never down, always ahead. He's spoken of the anxieties within us. He's spoken of an adversary afoot. Now he wants to talk to us about the healing that is ahead. The glory that awaits. And the way he speaks to that is that Peter is acknowledging that they suffer. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is acknowledging their suffering. He is empathizing with their suffering because he knows their suffering. He gets that. And yet then at the same time, he tries to put that suffering in context. He says, after a little while, after you have suffered just a little while, and as soon as we hear him say something like that and and especially we, we feel for those in, in faraway places and far-flung places that are actually suffering at this very hour just for their belief. And we think, how would they hear that? How would they respond to it? In hopes that I am not trivializing what I'm about to say, but there's that moment when Ben explains to Luke that Darth Vader is his father, and Ben says to Luke, much to Luke's chagrin, Luke, you're just going to have to realize that many of the truths we cling to depend on a certain point of view. And Luke doesn't like it. And yet it's still a true statement that that point of view allowed him to speak in the way he does. This, friends, the suffering that we are facing, the healing that is still ahead of us, church, you're just going to have to realize that many of the truths we cling to depend on a certain point of view. And that certain point of view is that whatever suffering we face in terms of its duration, but also in terms of the healing that will one day supplant it. A little while, from that point of view, is an appropriate characterization. It is the nature of our feeling. And 
you hear that, and I hear that, and you expect to hear that because it's a sermon and we're here on Sundays, and you expect to hear that from the Bible, and yet I also know at the same time because I'm with you. How do I really trust that? Oh, I can hear it, I can recite it, I can even preach it, but how do I trust it? And more so, how do I rest in it? Because the only way I can trust in that idea that there is a healing ahead of me upon which I must somehow keep my eyes on it is to look with the eyes of faith. The only way I can rest in that belief is with help from the Holy Spirit. I can't screw up my courage and determination to believe that. I need assistance from outside myself at the same time that I'm trying to put my attention in that direction. How? It's not on the basis of what I see. It's not on the basis of what I see in you. It's not on the basis of what I see in myself. It's not on the basis of what I see in the way of progress or regress. My ability to trust and rest in that truth rests on one basis alone. And that is with the help of the Spirit and my eyes of faith on the one whose body was broken until he was risen. I have nowhere else to go in order to keep my eyes ahead in that way in order to maintain my footing in this stance. It's the only option before me. And therefore, whatever predicament you might find yourself in this day, whatever tears you might be shedding on this morning, whatever wish that you might help that, that something would click, that everything would change, as much as I would long for those circumstances to change for you, can I promise that? Can I promise that? I can't promise that your circumstances will change. I can't promise that it will get better. And no one should, as much as we might long and even work unto that end. The way I come to trust and rest in that is to believe what has already happened in the things that I cannot change or in the many things that are changing more often than I would prefer. In order for me to keep my eyes forward, I have to set my eyes on one thing that will never change and which I would never want to change. And that one unchangeable thing is how I believe how God thinks of me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a colleague of Karl Barth, who himself went to prison in, in trying to overturn the Third Reich, it didn't get better for him from a certain point of view. He was executed three weeks before the end of World War II. Three weeks! But shortly before his death, he wrote this poem but I'm going to close by reading to you at length a poem that's called, Who Am I? And this he said, Who am I? They often tell me. I step from my cell, calm and cheerful and poised, like a squire from his manor. Who am I? They often tell me I speak with my guards freely, friendly, and clear, as though I were the one in charge. Who am I? They also tell me I bear days of calamity, serenely, smiling and proud, like one accustomed to victory. Am I really what others say of me? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless, yearning, sick, like a caged bird, struggling for life, breath, as if I were being strangled, starving for colors, for flowers, for birdsong, thirsting for kind words, human closeness, shaking with rage at power lust and pettiest insult, tossed about, waiting for great things to happen, helplessly fearing for friends so far away, too tired and empty to pray, to think, to work, weary and ready to take my leave of it all? Who am I? This one or the other? Am I this one today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? 
before others a hypocrite, and in my own eyes a pitiful, whimpering weakling? Or is what remains in me like a defeated army, fleeing in disarray, disarray from victory already won? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest me, O God. I am thine. Beloved, standing firm in the true grace of the Lord is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer does in that poem. By wrestling with himself and bringing before him his own thoughts and casting his cares upon the one whom he believes cares for him. In my longing for healing that lasts, in the face of the opposition before me, in the anxieties that I struggle with, what allows me to stand is this, that I believe in what is unchangeable. And what is unchangeable is this, that thou knowest me, O God, I am thine. Let's pray. Father, whatever it is that we face this day, whether it is full of crisis or full of an immense boredom that is as numbing as anything that we might imagine, we ask that you would show us what it means to stand and to stand with faith and to believe that you know us and that in spite of us, we belong to you and there is that in for you gladness. We pray your strength we pray your love in us. Mostly we pray your love through us for the sake of your church and for the sake of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.